Okay, turn with me to um, Romans chapter 5. Uh, Romans chapter 5. And uh, to begin our time this evening, I want to read um, verse 12 to 19. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to 19. Uh, Paul says here, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous." Now, tonight as we continue our series on um, how to read, understand the Bible, interpret it correctly, and entered into the last section on um, typology, um, we'll we'll just have uh, two more, this one and and one other. Um, But we're going to be looking at the typology of Adam and the fact that the person of Adam and uh, his creation Um, the context of creation itself, his role for humanity, his fall, and God's words to him in the midst of the fall, all of these things ultimately pointed forward and anticipated another future Adam-like figure to come, namely Jesus. So last time we We did a a little brief introduction on typology. What are the key features of typology? And then this time and and in one other session, um, we'll look at some examples of typology um, worked out within Scripture. And, And tonight in particular, looking at the type of the one who was to come, namely the Adam and Christ type. Now, you'll remember, perhaps, maybe a few weeks ago, that when we talked about types in Scripture, we are um, talking about certain people and events and even places and institutions that correspond to and foreshadow or anticipate the coming of Christ. Which is to say that there's, there's something about how the Scriptures are written in relation to certain persons, events, and institutions that indicate to us as the readers that something like this will come again in the future, ultimately reaching a fulfillment in and through Christ. And here in Romans chapter 5, verse 14 in particular, we find the language of types being used by Paul explicitly. Paul is drawing a connection, specifically a 
typological connection between Adam and Christ. In fact, again, he explicitly identifies Adam as a type of Christ. He says, again, that Adam was a type, a pattern of the one who was to come. There's a prophetic anticipation in the person of Adam, in the context of the story of Adam, in the wider context of the book of Genesis, and really in the whole of the Old Testament that is looking forward to an Adam-like figure to come and to succeed in all of the places where Adam failed. A new and better Adam. When Paul is reading the Old Testament, and again, particularly the creation account and the story of Adam, and I would say the whole of the Old Testament, there is something about how the Genesis narrative is written and how the redemptive plans of God unfold that indicates to him that another Adam would come and that this Adam was Christ, who he calls in 1 Corinthians 15 the last Adam. There is an Adam type or an Adam pattern or an Adam typology that looks forward to a greater Adam and this forward-looking typology is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And so, this example of typology provides us with a really good example to look at as we seek to understand types and typology and patterns in Scripture and how they work. And it provides us a good example because, as you can see, Paul is clearly identifying a type for us. He is clearly referencing the person of Adam as type of Christ. And if we want to read, of course, Scripture rightly, which is our goal, which has been our goal in all of this, we need to seek to understand what Paul is seeing in the text of the Old Testament, in the text of the book of Genesis, that makes him draw this connection. Because the connection isn't arbitrary. Right? He didn't just randomly select a random person in Scripture. Right? He didn't say Methuselah is a type of Christ to come. There's something about Adam in particular and the way that Adam is presented in the book of Genesis that indicates to him that there is a connection rooted in the Old Testament itself that anticipates another Adam-like person to come. Now, what I want to do tonight is to look at how Paul says Adam and Christ correspond to each other, what makes them similar to each other, what's their, um, their similarities as well as their significant contrasts. We'll look at that first, and then I want to go to Genesis to see what aspects of the text in Genesis, in Genesis should cause us um, as readers and would have caused Moses' audience to be anticipating this future like Adam to come. Now, um, I want to say, just as a, as a reminder, that one of the goals of looking at types in Scripture is always to be able to read the Bible better and especially to be able to see how all of the Old Testament in a variety of ways is pointing us as the readers, pointing Moses' audience, pointing the prophet's audience, pointing all of us to the coming of Christ. And so we'll look at Genesis to see how that works as well. First, I want to draw your attention to Romans 5 again. 
As I said a moment ago, Paul identifies here Adam as a type of Christ in verse 14. And Christ as the fulfillment of that um, Adamic-like typology. In verses 15, really down to about verse 19, explains some of the reasons why this is the case. Why Paul is making this connection, this parallel between the two. Adam and Christ have a lot of similarities. And several of these are pointed out here by Paul. This isn't, of course, an, an, an exhaustive uh, list, but it's relevant for the argument that he's making. But notice with me in verse 15. Adam and his trespass, his sinning against the clear commands of God, led to the death of many. Again in verse 15. Um, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, right? His, his one trespass leads to the death of many. His sin is what brings a curse upon the whole world and throughout all of humanity. In fact, in verse 12, Paul says that sin and death came into the world through Adam, and in this mysterious union sense, all men sinned in Adam. Right? Just, as, just as mysteriously we are all righteous in Christ, in Adam all men sinned. And the reason he says this is because Adam was originally a representative for all men. He was the, of course, first man. He is the one through whom all others would come. He was made in God's image. He was given dominion to rule over the earth. And if you just think about that language, what does that tell us? That means that he was royalty. He was a king or a king-like figure. And as royalty and as a king, he represents all others. It's just as we, we can think of it in, in uh, well, we don't really have you know, modern monarchies anymore, but you can think of you know, a monarchy, the king represents all the people. So if the king makes a horrible decision that maybe brings the whole nation into a disastrous war, that king, as the representative for the whole nation, is bringing disaster on the whole nation. And likewise, if the king rules righteously, he's representing the whole nation, and so the whole nation can benefit and prosper from, from his rulership. Adam, likewise, was given a command to carry out dominion. He was a king. And as a king, he served as a representative for all who would come through him. Um, theologians will refer to this representative reality as federal headship. Adam was the legal representative of all men. And as a result, all men by nature are, to use the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, all men by nature are in Adam. They're united to Adam. They come from Adam. Now, Paul says that this reality of Adam's federal headship that brought death to all through his sin corresponds to Jesus' headship. They're, they're, they're like the same. Only, of course, with Jesus, He brings life through His representative status rather than death. Again, verse 15, Adam's trespass brings death to many. 
But Jesus brings grace to many. Similarly, just as Adam's one trespass in verse 16 resulted in condemnation, the results of Jesus's gift of grace is justification. Right? His, his one act of obedience result has a different result from Adam. It's a, it's a representative result that brings about justification for many. Another similarity that Paul brings out is in verse 17. Adam's single act of disobedience resulted in a world that is now and was then and is now ruled by death. Likewise, Jesus also performed a single act, namely dying on the cross, but His single act results ultimately in the people of God reigning in life. Again, verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Their one acts of obedience or disobedience bring about cataclysmic results. One being very destructive towards humanity and towards the world, and the other being very destructive towards sin and death and overturning its dominion. Verse 19. We see there that the one act of disobedience from Adam makes many people sinners, but the one act of obedience from Christ makes many people righteous. All throughout this passage, the similarities between Adam and Christ center on the reality that they are both federal heads. They both serve as representatives for all who, we might say, are their offspring. All who come from them. They both represent their descendants or those who are united to them. For Adam, he represents all people who are born naturally in the flesh. Yeah, you you, your, your, your mother gets pregnant. She gives birth to you. You're born as a descendant of Adam. And in your first birth, he's your representative. And you inherit his nature. You inherit his guilt. And as a result, you do just what Adam did. In the same way that he sinned and, and transgressed against the commands of God, the natural man does the same thing. He sins willingly, habitually against the clear commands and the righteous standards of God. For Christ, He represents all people who have had a second birth. Right? Our first birth isn't enough. You're born with one birth and you're going to perish. You get a second birth, a birth in Christ, and that comes by the Spirit and brings about life. Jesus' children are, by nature, by a new nature, they are the children of God. They have been justified. Their sins have been forgiven. And they now walk by the Spirit. And so all of humanity is represented by these two figures. You are either in Adam and under condemnation, or you're in Christ and you've been justified and granted eternal life. If you're in Adam, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, you will die, but if you're in Christ, you will be made alive and resurrected and live forever. So, the main correspondence between these two figures and what makes Adam 
very much like Christ or a type of Christ is the fact that he was a representative for all men. He was a king who lived a life that was on behalf of others, on behalf of all of his offspring, and his actions had certain negative consequences for his offspring. But Christ, as a representative and also as a king, carries out actions that have certain positive results for all of his people. Now, um, clearly, Paul is drawing these connections between Adam and Christ based on the Genesis account, based on what we read in those early chapters of Genesis and even what follows after Genesis 1 through 3. When he speaks, for example, of the one man's trespass, this is clearly referring to Adam's willful disobedience, his transgression against God's clear command, you shall not eat of the tree. He trespasses against that prohibition of eating the tree. And so these connections that Paul is making here are, we might say, textual in nature. They're rooted in the text of Scripture. In other words, there are, for Paul, indications within the text of Genesis itself that gives warrant for Paul to say that Adam is a type of Christ. These aren't just arbitrary. He's not just allegorizing. He's not you know, picking out random figures from the Old Testament and drawing random connections to Christ. These are connections he's drawing out of the text itself when he's reading Genesis 1 through 3 and, and following. And it's these particular indications that I want to look at further. What is Paul, what are some of the things, there's a lot of things that we could point to, but what are some of the things in the book of Genesis that would indicate to the Apostle Paul that the connections he's making between Adam and Christ are warranted from the text itself? So turn with me to, to Genesis now. Let's look at um, some places in Genesis. I want you to um, turn to Genesis chapter 1. We'll look, we'll look at several different passages. Um, I said Genesis 1. Turn to Genesis 3 first. And then you, know, you can put your, your finger in this too. We'll be looking at Genesis 1 as well as, and Genesis 8 and, and 9. We'll be flipping back and forth. But I want to show you that there are not only similarities and correspondences between Adam and Christ, but that there are also hints, narrative hints within the book of Genesis itself written by Moses that are intended to guide Moses' audience, his first audience, and us as those who have received the Word of God there were indications in the text itself that anticipate another future Adam-like figure to come. And where I want to begin is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, of course, you all, you all know the context of this passage. God creates Adam and Eve in His image. He places them in the Garden of Eden. He gives them a command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent comes into the garden, deceives the woman, she eats, and then the man, Adam, also eats as he's standing passively by, watching all of this take place. They sin against God, they were ashamed, and so God brings the judgment of a curse upon them. But in the midst of this curse, in the midst of this judgment coming upon them, God also makes a promise. And this is essentially the very first promise of the Gospel. 
when he curses the serpent, who is the devil, he says in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here, God is making a promise. He's making a promise that tells us that the story of man and of God's creation of man and of man's um, image-bearing of God and ruling over the earth, this story has not come to an end with the fall of man. Ultimately, the woman is going to have children. She will have descendants. And one of her descendants is eventually going to do what Adam should have done in the garden. He's going to bruise the head of the serpent. He's going to get victory over the serpent. Probably the, the best way to capture this idea is to use the language of crushing. Right? The, the serpent will, will injure him, if you will, uh, but, but the, the, the descendant, the offspring of the woman, is going to crush the head of the serpent. Again, what Adam should have done when the serpent first entered into the garden. He will succeed where Adam failed. The serpent's deception will not be the final word. It's not the end of the story. But the final word will ultimately be the defeat of the serpent by one of the woman's children. Now, when God makes this promise in Genesis 3.15, it's evident, and it becomes increasingly evident as the narrative unfolds, that Adam, as well as those who come from Adam and after Adam, were hoping that this particular promise would be fulfilled in their own day. Or that it would come very soon. In fact, it appears to be the case that many people believed that their own offspring was going to be the one who gets victory over the serpent. And you can see this especially by how Individuals like Adam, like Eve, like Lamech, name their children. The way they name their children is telling you that they're believing in the promise of Genesis 3.15. So notice with me in verse 20. Let's look there. Verse 20 of Genesis 3. After the curse and the promise are given... Moses says that the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Right? Now that's all. That's, that's, a, uh, that's a fascinating name to give to the woman, especially in light of the fact that the curse of death just came on the world. The name Eve has to do with life. She's, the, she's called Eve because she is the mother of the living. Eve meaning living or life. He names her that rather than naming her moat or, or death, right? I mean, you would think that in light of the curse, that's what he would call it, but he doesn't. But he calls her life. He calls her the mother of the living. Which tells us that Adam is trusting in, he's hoping in this promise, this offspring that will come in and through his wife Eve. This is a subtle hint within the narrative, but a hint no less that Adam is trusting in the promises of God that a conqueror would come who would defeat the serpent. Now, this is then confirmed again, this, this fact that the um, 
course, Adam and Eve and their offspring are trusting and anticipating in, looking forward to the fulfillment of this promise. This is confirmed again when we come to chapter 4. And we see the birth of Cain and Abel. When Eve gave birth to her first son, she names him, of course, Cain. And uh, the name Cain comes from the Hebrew, which means to, to acquire. She, she's saying, I've, I've acquired this one. I've acquired Cain from the Lord. She, she is believing in or thinking that Cain is the, the special anticipated offspring that she is to receive from the Lord. The one who will conquer the serpent. The promised one. And this is especially clear because when she then gives birth to a second son, she names him Abel, which means vanity. The point is that if she's, if she's thinking that Cain is the one who will reverse the curse, why does she need another son? Why does she need Abel? He's vanity. Right? There's, there's no purpose for him. But of course, as chapter 4 progresses, it becomes painfully obvious that Cain is in fact not the promised offspring. Right? He's, he's a murderer. He's like the serpent. He's an offspring of the serpent and one who will be at enmity with the woman's promised offspring. And so the hope for a coming offspring continues in the narrative. There is still an anticipation that a serpent killer, an offspring of Adam, will come and succeed where Adam failed. Now, um, jump ahead a little bit more to chapter 5, and it appears that the hope for a coming Savior will finally and ultimately be fulfilled in Noah. So if you look with me towards the end of um, Adam's genealogy through the line of Seth in verse 28, we're told about a man named Lamech. Moses writes, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and he called his name Noah. Noah means rest. And when Lamech gives the name to Noah as rest, he says, for out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, this, this description could not be more explicit. Lamech clearly identifies Noah as the one he believes will bring rest from the Genesis 3 curse. He thinks Noah is going to be the one who reverses that curse. He will be the one who saves from the curse, who gives rest from the curse. He will be the one who reverses the painful toil of working the ground that is now producing thorns and thistles and the one who ultimately defeats the serpent. Now, again, we of course know that Noah was also not the promised offspring. That offspring would come through Noah, an offspring would be a descendant of Noah. Christ would come through Noah. He would be one of his descendants. But Noah himself was not the one who would bring the rest from the curse. We know this, of course, from the, from the Scriptures because he too fails. He fails like Adam. He fails like Cain. He sins. What's interesting about Noah in particular is that the way Moses describes the key events 
that surround the life of Noah and the flood, the way he describes these events is as if Noah is a kind of second Adam. He is an Adam-like figure. He intentionally portrays Noah as a kind of new Adam. In the way that he records the account of creation and Adam, and then the account of the flood and the decreation that happens in the flood, and then the recreation of the world that happens subsequent to it through Noah, Moses is signaling to us as the readers that another Adam, an Adam-like figure, has arisen which causes us, or should cause us to wonder, is he the one? Is he the promised offspring, or shall we look to another? And the reason that this particular observation is important when we're reading through the narrative of Genesis is because the similarities and the correspondences between Adam and Noah tells us that the promised offspring to come is going to fit this pattern. He's going to look like this. He's going to do things like this. He's going to have a certain status that's similar to this. The promised offspring was believed by Moses to be an Adam-like figure. And the fact that in many ways the life of Adam in the beginning of creation is being repeated now in the life of Noah signifies that the coming offspring will himself be this Adam-like figure. So let me just let me unpack this a little bit more by showing you some of the, the similarities between Adam and Noah and the events of creation and the events of the flood. So let's flip back and forth here. So turn with me first to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and then um, hold your, your finger in place in Genesis chapter 8 as well. Genesis chapter 1, we see there in verse 2 that the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters and the earth is formless and void. Then, when you turn over to Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1, in the midst of the, the flood account, we see there that God sends a wind. His ruach, which is the word for spirit, the same word you find in Genesis 1, He sends a wind to blow over the earth and then the waters subside. Right? There's, a, there's a parallel there between the work of the Spirit and the wind that blows over the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. When you look there, you see that God creates a separation between the waters in the sky or in the heavens and the waters on earth. And then when you look at Genesis chapter 8 and a verse 2, the waters from the heavens were restrained and again the boundaries between the sky and the earth were established. Turn back again to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 9. And in verse 9, you see there that God causes the waters on the earth to be gathered together so that the dry land now appears. And this is parallel to what you see in Genesis chapter 8, verses 3 to 5, where again, the account is given of the waters um, receding and the dry land appearing. Genesis chapter 1, verse 20 to 23, on day 5 of creation, God creates the birds to fly in the heavens and to multiply on the earth. And then when you read through the passage, Genesis chapter 8, verse 6 to 12, Noah sends forth a raven, a bird, and then a dove, 
to fly in the heavens, and ultimately to discover the dry ground of the earth. One more. Or, or, or second to last one. Genesis chapter 1, verse 24 to 25. This is day 6 of creation. God calls all of the livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth into existence. And this is parallel with what we see in Genesis chapter 8, verses 15 to 19, where Noah and his family, along with all of the beasts of the earth, go out of the ark and now begin to populate the earth. In addition to these particular similarities between the creation account and then the flood account, God also, we see, essentially gives the same commands. There are, there are some changes, but a lot of similar commands to Noah as He gave to Adam. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 29, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then further down, verse 29, I've given you every plant yielding seed. This is in many ways parallel to what we see in Genesis chapter 9. Just to read through some of these. The same command is given to Noah and to his sons. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In verse 1, the relationship between Noah and his offspring and the animals is then described. Only now things have changed because of the entrance of sin into the world. Verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens. Into your hands they are delivered. And then notice in verse 3 as well, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And then in verse 6, there is the, um, the introduction of the death penalty for anyone who commits, anyone or any beast who, who kills another unjustly. And the justification that is given, whoever sheds the blood of man, by, his, uh, by man shall his blood be shed, is that he was made in the image of God. Right? Drawing the parallel to the Genesis 1 account where God makes the man and the woman in his image image. You've got all these, these parallels, in other words, between Genesis 1 through 3 and the story of Noah. Genesis 6 all the way to Genesis 9, the flood account, the destruction of the world, the recreation of the world, and Noah and his offspring repopulating the earth. You've got all these similarities, and there's many more that even could be brought out, but here's the point. It's very evident that as Moses is writing about Noah, he wants his audience to see that Noah was a kind of new Adam. Noah is an Adam-like figure. These parallels are not arbitrary. They are purposeful so that we start forming the connections in our mind. The patterns that we are seeing are intentional patterns that are drawing parallels between certain figures and between certain events. And what that's communicating along with the promises that one of Adam and Eve's offspring will ultimately achieve victory over the serpent is that that future offspring, the promised one, is going to be an Adam-like figure. The Christ, in other words, will be like Adam. And this, of course, is what Paul brings out in Romans chapter 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22 and following, and that, that other passage in the 40s that we read in the beginning. Christ is 
the Adam, the fulfillment of Adam, the one who succeeds in every area that Adam failed. Noah, when we read his life, we find that he is another kind of Adam, but he's not the fulfillment. Why? Because he fails. And because he fails, that causes us to be looking for another one like him, but better to come. And we could look at Abraham, we could look at David as well. We could note the connections between them and Adam. They are both presented as royal figures. Many kings will come from Abraham. David himself, of course, is anointed as king. They are both presented as priestly figures, just as Adam was a royal priest, one who was a king who carried out dominion, but who also served as a priest in the garden. So also was Abraham, a priestly figure, entered into covenant with God, offered sacrifices to God, and David likewise is a royal priest. He serves as king, he wears the priestly ephod, he offers sacrifices, he organizes the Levites even in the temple. We look at all of these different connections. There's a very real sense in which we could even say that Abraham and David are Adam-like figures. But again, just like Adam, just like Noah, they were sinful. They failed, they sinned, and they themselves needed a Savior. But ultimately, we get to Christ. Right? And when Christ came into the world as Adam's offspring, as Noah's offspring, as the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. What did he do? He didn't fail. Right? He succeeded in every single area where all the others who had come before him had failed. He obeyed God. He listened to the voice of God even in the midst of tremendous suffering. Just like Adam was tempted by the serpent, Jesus was tempted by the serpent. Just like Adam was a royal priest, Jesus is a royal priest. Just like Adam was given commands to obey, Jesus was given commands to obey as He was born under the law to keep the law perfectly. But where all other Adams had failed before, Jesus succeeds, which ultimately makes Him, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam. There were other Adams right, who came before. He's the last one. He's the culmination. He is the fulfillment of the Adamic type. All of those Subtle hints within the narrative of Genesis especially that calls us to see new Adams arise and then new Adams fail. All of these details are not arbitrary. Rather, what they're supposed to do is to create within us an anticipation, a prophetic anticipation for an Adam to arise who would succeed where the first one failed. And that last one succeeded where Adam failed. So, when you are reading throughout the Old Testament, especially throughout the narratives, and you notice these similarities between one person or another, or between one event and another, you need to take note of those similarities. They're not just you know, literary fancy things to do. They are author intended. They are prophetic indications that in the way that God acted in the past, so also will He act in the future. They are communicating to us theological information. You know, we could, we're not going to get into this one. Um, but you know you could you could read the the Genesis 18 and 19 account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah 
And then you can go to the end of the book of Judges and you can see virtually the same thing happening all over again in the sin of the people of Gibeah. But rather, right, rather than the, 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 the Sodom and Gomorrah people who, who've been destroyed, rather than, um, in it, than it being Sodom and Gomorrah, now it's God's covenant people who are being presented like Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? So, so we are to read that and to understand that the people of God throughout the book of Judges have descended so deeply into sin that they've become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And what's the end? The end is that they suffer judgment. A judgment by fire in particular. And that rehashing of the story tells us, signals to us, that this is how God is judging sin and evil now. He destroyed the world in a flood in the first creation. And now in the new creation, in this um, post-flood world, He will again bring judgment against sin, but it will come as fire. It will come like Sodom and Gomorrah. And you see those, those connections, those parallels between the stories. You take note of those. Because they're telling us how we're to read the story and how we are to anticipate what is to come. They are telling us that this is how God is acting in the world now and how He will act in the future. So that's just that's one example. I mean, there's, there's, again, many examples of different types related to persons, events, places. We'll look at one more um, next time and, and then we'll, we'll be done. So let me, um, let me close this with a, a word of prayer, okay?